I'm Dr. Neha Batuk, and you're listening to Health Discovered, the show dedicated to taking on important topics and discussing what they mean for your health. As always, we bring you fascinating stories and unique perspectives while looking for unexpected discoveries along the way. We'll also explore thought-provoking ideas and questions like this one. What impact does the food we eat have on our brain and how we feel? Here to help us answer that question is Dr. Uma Naidu. Dr. Naidu is a Harvard nutritional psychiatrist, a trained professional chef, and author of the book, This Is Your Brain on Food. Okay, so Dr. Naidu, your work really helps us break down what can feel like a really complicated relationship between food and mental health. So I want to start there with the whole idea of eating your feelings, that in some way we all use food to cope with our feelings. It's almost like an adaptive response to meet some unmet need, and sometimes it becomes maladaptive. So how do you help people shift from this short-term mental health gain from eating something that might not be so great for them in the long run to a more long-term focused mental health mindset? That's a great question. You know, I think that first and foremost, the person has got to identify within themselves, not so different from a person who, say, is struggling with a different type of drug addiction. They have to recognize that there is an issue. And whether it is that they recognize first that their mental health is struggling or that they recognized first that their nutrition is a problem, I'm there to make that connection and connect the dots for them to help them understand what has been a gap in our medical care. We go in and talk to our doctors about type 2 diabetes or gaining weight, but we're not bringing the most important organ into the room, which is our brain. So when people first and foremost make that connection that something feels wrong, I can then help them break down what it is around their food and their nutrition that they're doing. On the other hand, sometimes people come and saying, I'm not eating right, and I know that something is awry, I'm getting headaches, or I have brain fog. They're starting to feel something, which I call body intelligence, so they're paying attention to that. That's a very powerful tool. So I guess the most important thing for me is to help someone feel autonomous, and that they have the power to change because that becomes the fulcrum around which they want to make more changes in their lives. Thank you for that. I think that's such a great point that the readiness for change kind of has to be there. Somebody has to say, I'm ready to make some change. I may not know what it is and that you can sort of act as a guide to help them connect those dots. Absolutely. You talk a lot about the research that shows a strong link between depression and your gut, and you use the term blue bowel. Can you talk a little bit about that connection? What is blue bowel? The best way to explain it is that the emerging and burgeoning research around the gut microbiome and this connection between the gut and the brain has actually really helped fill in the science behind nutritional psychiatry and is really the basis of how we've gotten to unpack this connection and the way that food impacts our gut. So if you think about blue ball, there are foods that actually impact our mood. People don't realize, for example, that alcohol is a depressant. People don't realize that things 
that contain a lot of colorants, dyes, stabilizers, and have ultra-processed or processed ingredients um, that processed vegetable oils are pro-inflammatory for their gut, that these things inflame the gut or cause chronic insidious inflammation, which ultimately feeds back to the brain in that loop. So part of it is understanding first that there is this gut-brain connection, then that we could have symptoms of a low mood because of how we're eating. Hence, you know, just coining that term Dubao, but based on the interaction of food impacting the gut microbes, then impacting our emotional state. Yeah, I think that's a great point that, you know, we think of medicines as chemicals that might change something in our body and our brain, but we don't often think about the impact of food as containing chemicals that will also do the same thing. Um, So I, I love that way of thinking about it. So now that we kind of recognize the gut-brain connection, can you talk about fighting depression with prebiotics and probiotics? And before you do that, can you help us understand the difference between the two? Sure. So, you know, people tend to think of these mostly as supplements, or I should say they don't realize that much of the benefits of these foods or much of these benefits can be obtained from food. Um, The way that I like to break it down is that prebiotics are foods that help to nurture those gut microbes. So when you eat foods such as beans, berries, garlic, onions, leeks, asparagus, um, these actually nurture the gut microbes. And it's like feeding the microbes that help to take care of us. So we are nurturing them. We are giving them fiber, which is what they need to thrive and then to act in our best benefit. Probiotics can certainly be a supplement, but you also have foods that have live active cultures like plain yogurt. And I say plain because if you go for fruited yogurt, that just defeats the purpose. The added sugars are really not good for your brain or your body. So plain yogurt with live active cultures, but then there are also fermented foods. Um, fermented foods include things like tempeh, miso, uh, natto, uh, kefir, kombucha, kimchi, um, many, many different things that we can add in. They contain live active cultures. So when you eat them, they bring new and different microbes back to the gut and to the gut microbiome. So these are helpful for that gut-brain balance and for that gut microbiome. And certainly some people take a probiotic supplement, but you can actually get good benefits from eating a variety of fermented foods. And you can certainly nurture the microbes by eating uh, foods that have a prebiotic benefit. That's, you know, really great information in terms of number one, that we have this really helpful gut bacteria, the microbiome that lives within us, and we decide what to feed it. And I think that that's a great point. And some of the foods you point out are in so many different categories that it's almost like there's something there for all of us. We don't have to really shift to something that we we just can't pronounce. We can shift to foods that we know. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. You know, part of this is informed by my personal background as a trained chef someone who cares about nutrition and and knew and understood that, you know, we just don't learn enough in medical school about it. So the thing that I think is most important about nutritional psychiatry is being inclusive 
of foods rather than having people give up and omit foods. Because the moment someone feels restricted, uh, and this is, of course, unless they have an allergy and intolerance or condition like celiac disease where they can't consume gluten, that's entirely different. But people, when they feel restricted, there's always a boomerang effect where they start to crave that food. And it happens, certainly has happened in most many my patients, if not all. So it, it's much easier to have people understand the number of foods they can add in to their diets, but also then be aware of those few that they have to limit or in some cases avoid, but at the very least cut back on and have awareness of, like the very first point we made, having an awareness that the ice cream you're eating every night during COVID may not be the best choice for you. Are there better ways to do that? So that's the premise upon which I work. And I think that People feel better when they know they have so many more options rather than feeling they have to exclude entire food groups. Well, that's, a, that's a great point. I want to switch gears to sugar. So when it comes to depression, sugar is a particularly bad actor. Absolutely. So, you know, our brain has different sources of energy. Um, certainly sugar is one of them. And I think the trap for people is that they eat certain foods that give them that sugar rush and simple carbohydrates. So say, for example, a person eats a donut, the insulin levels in the body increase, but that also allows more tryptophan, which is the natural amino acid building block for serotonin to enter the brain. And when tryptophan enters the brain, it's converted to serotonin. So guess what? When someone eats that sugary donut, there's initially kind of nice feeling they have. And they wonder, looking at me, well, why are you telling me that's not good? Well, a couple of things happen when they eat that donut. If they're having a coffee and a donut on the way to work, by the time they get to work, they need either a second or third donut, but they're certainly hungry because they're not satiated. But the other thing that happens is that these simple carbohydrates become addictive. We know that research has shown us that Sugar works in the same dopamine reward pathways as, as street drugs like cocaine. So although you have the short-term happy effect or calming effect, the rise in blood sugar, the insulin spike that happens, all of these things, all of these effects over time lead to things like brain atrophy and dementia. And research has shown that. So sugar is not just a bad actor. It's a damaging substance that if consumed in excess, you know, we, I'm not saying you can exclude sugar because we can't, it's in our diet. But where we are aware of those, like I mentioned yogurt, you know, fruited yogurts can have upwards of six teaspoons of added sugar in a small half cup serving. And yet if you had plain yogurt, you know, well-sourced plain yogurt and added berries, completely different sugar profile. So although both have sugar, it's a different kind of sugar and it's more controlled and it's less of the refined and added sugars. So all of that becomes important in making these choices. But I think most importantly, people just need to understand that when you overly consume sugar, it's not just your waistline, it's not just type 2 diabetes, it's not even just type 3 diabetes, which is what people are calling Alzheimer's these days. And they're calling it that because of this connection, this long-term effect on your brain. Um, so it's just something for us to be aware of. You know, I, I love that you point out that sometimes you are attempting to help your patients make a healthy change, but it's really the specificity. So I've certainly, not even to my patients, but in my own family said, hey, you need to, how about adding yogurt? And then my brother will come home with tubs of, you know, fruit yogurt and sugary yogurt. And it, it's just uh, a very interesting <laughs> 
Well, it's, it's, it, I learned this early on in my career from a patient who told me, well, Dr. Naidu, you know, pizza and Coke is actually a vegetarian diet. And, you know, it's, it's uh, colors of the rainbow are also rainbow cake. So I think you're completely right. It's about specific, but also, you know, there's a lot of sort of trickery that goes on in food labels, right? It may not be intended to misguide us, but here's the thing. Our recipes in the United States are all standardized in any cookbook in the United States to pounds and ounces, yet our food labels aren't grams. So people do not know how to convert those amounts. And people don't realize that four grams of sugar is about one teaspoon. So if you're looking at a, a half a cup of, you can tell your brothers, so you're looking at a half a cup serving of fruited yogurt with blueberries, it has 26, if it has 26 grams of sugar, it's a lot of sugar. One of my favorite examples is a few years ago, there was a coffee store that had this very colorful, very special coffee drink. And I just challenged my patients. I said, look in the app. And when you get, you know, the low fat, non-foam, whatever it is, just the regular drink, you know, uh, without all the extras, tell me how many grams of sugar. And the small size, the smallest size available had 58 grams of sugar. Wow. So, you know, it's just, it's just helpful when people know that because they do a quick conversion, they realize if I had a drink, coffee drink or other specialty coffee drink, and it was a small size, would I be putting, you know, X number of teaspoons of sugar in that? Wow, that is really interesting. So, you know, one of the other things listening to you, it, it totally makes sense that some of the same foods that I recommend avoiding eating when it comes to heart disease and stroke risk um, are the same things that uh, you would recommend to avoid for your brain health, like fried foods and bad fats, like trans fats. Can you shed some more light, though, on some of the good, helpful fats like omega-3 fatty acids, especially how that relates to depression? Sure. Areas of research in trans fats actually showed that it was related to behavioral aggression. So I think that's helpful to know um, in terms of mental health. And when you're looking at fried foods, you know, I mentioned processed vegetable oils and a lot of fast food restaurants use these because they're less expensive, but they also pro-inflammatory. So what they're doing is they're flipping the omega-3 and the omega-6 ratio in your body. We want more omega-3s because they're anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, great for our brain, great for our gut, great for our body overall. And the way that you can obtain those um, omega-3s are through healthy fats. One of the best sources is um, uh, wild sockeye salmon, which is a fatty fish, anchovies, uh, sardines. If you are plant-based, you can get short-chain omega-3s, which are ALAs from you know, chia seeds, flax seeds, walnuts, and those types. The conversion is not as efficient, but it is still some ability to get omega-3s. And then you, know, you also have things like extra virgin olive oil, healthy fats from avocado. All of these are, are, are brain-healthy fats. And, you know, generally the ones we hope we will encourage people to move toward. You also dive deeply into helpful vitamins like the B vitamins, minerals like iron and magnesium, herbs like turmeric and oregano. What's the best way of pulling it all together so it doesn't feel so overwhelming when you're at the grocery store? Sure. So I ask people to do two things, to start with one habit that they want to change. And 
A, if it's something, a food that they're eating that they can't get enough of and they just develop, have developed cravings for, can they slowly start to replace that with a healthy option? So the first thing I ask them is, if it's ice cream, can you try the recipe in chapter 11 of my book for a ice cream made entirely with banana? And we know that banana has a prebiotic benefit. We know that we don't want you to have the whole tub of it if you make it, but a certain portion of that is actually a fruit-based ice cream that does not have any added sugars in it. And you can even make a chocolate flavor with brain-boosting um, uh, natural raw cacao powder, which is rich in cacao flavonol. So, so the ways that you want to rethink that habit and can you first replace it um, and start to cut back on the kind of, I happen to be picking on ice cream. I hear that a lot, you know, the ice cream that you're eating. The second thing is, what is one easy thing you can do right now today to bolster your gut health? I always like to say happy gut is a happy mood because your improved gut health is going to improve your mood. It's going to improve any type of symptom in your mental well-being that you may be suffering with. And a very easy way to do that is to increase your fiber. And you can increase your fiber by simply leaning into vegetables, berries, beans, nuts, legumes, healthy whole grains. And you can do that when you go to the supermarket. So those are two easy steps. One of the things, for example, you can get more leafy greens. You can buy more colorful vegetables. So not, you know, this is not rocket science. It's start where it can be easy for you to make that difference. That's really helpful. So I'll tell you, you shared some personal stories about times when you really struggled in your book. But, you know, one of the things for me personally has been, so I've had three children, and with each one, um, have had a, a lot of postpartum depression where it was really hard even to just get out of bed. And even knowing the health benefits of a healthy diet, even knowing the benefits to my kids, it was really a struggle. So how do you advise people that are really struggling, that are sort of in the depths of their depression? How do you kind of help them make this kind of change? So I think that, you know, one of the things and a very important caveat about the use of nutritional psychiatry is where and when to use it. You can always use an improvement in one's nutrition at any stage of an illness, not feeling well. But in, if it's a situation where someone is struggling so much that they actually can't get out of bed, you know, can't make those better choices around food, the first line of treatment is actually seeing a doctor and getting some form of therapy, maybe a combination of counseling and medication. I still prescribe medications. They've saved the lives of many of my patients. So for severe depression, especially, you know, um, psychotic depression, postpartum, mania, um, or psychotic illnesses, it becomes important to be inclusive of all forms of treatment. That doesn't mean that while you're doing that, you cannot advise on a healthier diet. You know, maybe the person is not eating or eating only, and this has happened in a, a patient I worked with, only eating French fries from a fast food restaurant, not even getting the burger or anything else, just eating the French fries. So, you know, it's, it's where, do, where can you help that person move from that position in addition to medications and therapy and counseling that they need to, what can we do differently in, in how you're eating? Because we now know that all of these foods are driving depression. On another note, in addition to those food recommendations, the person has to be strong enough 
to be able to undertake them. So it might be that they need that medication first. But I will tell you that instead of saying to someone like that, you need to get 150 minutes of exercise in, I will say to them, can you walk the dog? Can you go to your local Dunkin' Donuts and buy a cup of coffee? Can you take your kids for a walk with the dog? Or can you go out for the newspaper? Because instead of using the word exercise, what I'm trying to do is mobilize them and trying to meet them where they're at. Because we know that depression is, is a very severe illness. So it's not something to be taken lightly. And it might be that at a certain stage of the depression, the person needs much more than just the nutritional interventions. Of course, nutritional interventions are still powerful, but they might need a little more of that point. I think that's a key point because I think sometimes um, one of the biggest critiques, let's call it, that people have towards lifestyle medicine or nutrition psychiatry is that, you know, you can't just solve these problems with food. And that's not what you're saying. You're saying very clearly that it's a piece of the puzzle um, and it's an important piece that can be used at any time without the side effects potentially of, of some other interventions, but doesn't have to be the only piece of that puzzle. It's interesting because the mode of psychiatry uh, and psychology that I practice is really a holistic, integrated, and functional approach. And I happen to have focused in my book on nutritional psychiatry because that is my specialty. But when I talk to people, I'm asking them, you know, are you hydrating when you're on your Zoom meetings? Are you going out for a walk? Are you spending time in nature? Or if you live in the city, are you taking a walk outdoors um, so that you get a little bit of sunlight? Because that will provide 80% of, you know, tenants of outdoor time will provide 80% of vitamin D you need, especially important in the Northeast where I live. You know, so it's really a holistic approach. Uh, and if people are exercising well, are you, you know, are you doing this, are you doing that, or are you taking a dance class so you can get yourself moving? Are you practicing mindfulness and meditation? It's all of those things. And I think that they all contribute towards our mental well-being. I do think the one that's most overlooked, though, is how we're eating, because we do that every single day. We do it several times a day, and it's such an easy intervention at the end of your fork. I love this. So I'm going to take some some personal advantage of your expertise here. So let me give you another scenario here. I'd love your thoughts on the topic of children. So I'll give you some background since we're talking about multiple pillars of, of lifestyle. So went out yesterday with some moms and our daughters, and we were all at the dinner table, and immediately the girls ordered sodas. They exchanged gifts Immediately, they pulled out the candies, and before their meal could come, they were ripping open the bags and shoving chocolates and candies, and they just looked blissful and happy. And if you could pan over to the other side of the table, you'd see the mom's faces, and we were all just very shocked and uh, alarmed and thinking of ways that we would... Uh, dispense of the candy when we got home. So I used a technique that I've been using since Halloween, um, which is we got home, she got distracted, I hid her bag of candy and chocolate. Now, could you provide feedback and advice on a better strategy to help our children develop a healthy relationship with some of these unhealthy foods and ingredients that they're gonna encounter in life without locking it away? 
So I think, you know, it's a, it's a longer conversation and not an easy one because it's certainly not a perfect situation and none of our lives are perfect. You know, first and foremost, let's recognize that our kids are going to come across a cupcake at a birthday party um, that may have been bought, you know, may have been not been freshly baked and may have gone those one ingredients and be laden with sugar. So I like people to think of this as sort of a lifestyle with an 80-20 rule. You know, we try for 80% of the time to do the best we can and 20% of the time we live life the way that it comes. Like the outing last night with the candy and the soda. So if we take a step back from that, we realize, you know, that life is not always perfect. I think there's some guidelines we want to be able to follow. One is encouraging kids from an early age to actually eat the whole food and skip the processed version. One great example to share with the kid is have the orange, have the clementine, Let's skip the store-bought juice because of the tons of added sugar and the lack of fiber. Another one is involve them in meal preparation. I'm a big believer in meal preparation. Busy moms, you know, I think busy parents, actually, this is a great tool. Involve them in that. Can they wash some veggies? Can they unpack something? Can they be involved? So they're actually seeing the kinds of food that you're preparing. Now, you know, if, if right now you're buying frozen dinners or you you know, kind of using a lot of processed ingredients. And that's an opportunity for you to examine what we said right at the beginning. What are some things that you can switch out of that? None of us is perfect. My nutrition is certainly not perfect, but it's a way in to start thinking about it. So kids learn from that, right? They become involved in it. They see fresh tomatoes, which become little jewels that they can eat um, because they're actually sweet and they're delicious. But if they wouldn't know that unless they're asked to experiment with it and invited in the conversation. So while I say this, I know it's not perfect. Kids may fling the tomato and say, I don't want to eat that. I want the candy. That is often what happens, right? But then the third thing is involving them in that conversation. So let's take soda and the candy separately. Okay, so we're going to go out tonight and whatever happens, whether it's a piece of cheesecake or the candy that your friends bring, you're going to have some at the restaurant. And then when we come home, it's back to our normal life. So however the parent defines that definition and that guidance, because then it's you have X number or X amount and and that's it. So either there's an understanding that the candy is thrown out or whatever that understanding is, right? But the other part with soda, I think that introducing kids early on, not to the processed food juices, but to actual to water, hydrating with water, things like using fresh berries even frozen berries to flavor something, you know, teaching them a healthy smoothie. I'm not a big proponent of smoothies, but, you know, putting spinach and fresh berries in a smoothie, let's say an almond milk, tons of recipes that we can do for kids that make it interesting for them. So they're having something nutritious. You can call it a milkshake. You can call it, um, you know, a monster green smoothie because it has spinach in it, but it can be flavored with berries that sweeten it up. You don't have to add sugar or honey if you don't want to. So, you know, I think there are ways to have that conversation to create gentle limits, which also are firm because you're saying this amount at the restaurant and that's it. You know, we're both going to toss it on the way home unless there's some reason to save the candy, but you know, that that's one way to do it. I think it begins with that conversation. I don't think it's easy. Um, and the other tip I have is trying to replace their favorite foods with healthier versions. So say um, say that they like fried mozzarella sticks um, and that they consume dairy and that's something that they eat. You know, switching it out with an air fried version 
um, of a, you know, a well-sourced mozzarella uh, cheese. Switching it out, switching french fries out with zucchini fries in an air fryer oven or oven baked fries. Um, switching out, um, you know, potato chips with um, oven roasted spinach chips, which are like a 20 minute recipe. It's finding things that they want and replacing it or the ice cream with the banana ice cream. All of those become an important part of the conversation in teaching them a healthier way and hoping there's one of those things you know, that speaks to them. That's, that's great advice. But misinformation is a big, big grave concern for health professionals, especially as we're learning more and more today. So I'm just interested in sort of headline prescriptions that we'll see in the media that, you know, even with food as medicine, it becomes very simplified. So, you know, blueberries will cure your uh, your PTSD or what have you, how do you talk to your patients about really that this is a holistic approach and not just one particular thing that will overwhelm the totality of their, their diet and their nutrition? Absolutely. Um, you know, the reality is that there isn't a way to control what's actually spoken in the media. And as someone who is new to the space of even being in social media, which I only went to because of uh, my book being released during the pandemic. So there really was no way um, after the blood, sweat and tears of writing the book to actually share uh, besides social media. And I've really embraced it as a way to share educational information, but always in context. You know, I've been quoted on saying, it's not about 10 blueberries or 10 milligrams of Prozac. It's really the entire whole approach of what you're doing in your life. I don't think we can take away the sensationalization of what the news is doing. But as MDs, as clinicians, as scientists, we can actually write for the media. So whenever I'm given an opportunity to comment on something, I look up the current research, I see what's going on in my practice, and I comment. I provide some type of guidance around that. When I talk to patients, you know, it's helping them understand that because let, let's face it, we, we have a quick fix mentality in this country. You know, I think that people walk into a doctor's office and they expect a prescription. Firstly, it's like a very brief visit, they expect a prescription and they expect that to fix it. It's unpacking that mentality too, both from the perspective of physicians as well as patients. There's a lot of power in a prescription pad, but that's not the only power. And I think that when people understand that it's going to be a slow and steady process, but that it will be effective if they truly invested, then those blueberries over time can help. They just won't help overnight. And it just won't be the only thing. They might actually need a form of therapy. I'm a huge proponent of different forms of psychotherapy. And I think they are so often ignored in, in mental health. So I feel like it is that composite approach to the number of things that they're doing along the path of how they're eating, what are they doing with their lives to make it a comprehensive treatment plan for them. Well, you know, listening to you, it seems like that seems to be your superpower and maybe the secret sauce is that you not only know what needs to be done with regard to nutrition and why, but also how to prescribe it, how to make it tasty um, with your culinary background. So I really appreciate your time. And I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health Discovered from WebMD. I'm Dr. Neha Bhattak. Before you go, please take a moment to subscribe to Health Discovered wherever you listen to podcasts.
Stay well, and I'll talk to you next time.